Our gracious Lord God, we again praise you and thank you for our time together, our time together around your word. We thank you for your word, that it instructs us and teaches us. We thank you even more for the Holy Spirit who takes and applies your word, teaches us your word. And we ask, Lord God, for his, his comforting and his teaching and his leading even this morning. Guide us as we uh, attend your word and, and uh, help us to live it throughout our lives, both this week and the weeks to come. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as Paul mentioned, uh, because of the recent movie that, the Holly, that was produced in Hollywood by the same name, Noah, the uh, pastor asked me to uh, give this message on, the, uh, on this topic. Um, I got an email. I was in Orlando all, all day. I was at an operators conference with every uh, operators from around the world who use uh, Bombardier aircraft. And um, got an email. Um, Stating you know, that uh, Ron asked, uh, said, "Thank you for the special effects of this week." And uh, at the time, uh, I, I guess that was about Wednesday, and it was pouring. At, well, just to give you how heavy it was, um, Jacksonville, Birmingham, and all the cities on the on the the coastline between Florida and uh, Georgia and, and Alabama got two feet of rain in 16 hours. Incredible. And that, those areas are so level, there's no place for the water to run. So, but I cannot take any credit for that. <laughs> that is the Lord God. But, I, but because of the movie, like I said, Pastor asked me to speak about Noah. But I don't really want to talk about the movie other than just a few statements. Um, I cannot in any way endorse it or recommend that you watch it unless you want to do a study on how wrong Hollywood can depict the Bible. Um, generally speaking, if you take the opposite view than what Hollywood depicts, You'd be, more, you'd be right more often than not. The movie ends up being blasphemous against God, belittling of a very godly man, who, by the way, happens to be all of our many times great-grandfather. Sometimes the question is asked, are you related to so-and-so? And my normal response is, if you go back far enough, and if you go back far enough, it doesn't matter who you are, it all ends up at him and his wife. We're all related. But what I do want to talk about is the man Noah, his character, what he was like, his great success, and... Uh, 
his failure. Okay. So let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 6 and verse 9. We'll start there. We're going to be hopping around a couple of places. And it says, these are the generations of Noah. And just, just as a teaching point, be aware of that little phrase. These are the generations of. Ten times you'll see it in the book of Genesis. That's called toledoth. That's the Hebrew word. And they are a marker of different parts of the book of Genesis. Quite possibly, and this is what I believe, I, we don't really have enough data to, to st state it dogmatically, but quite probably these are sections of written by a particular author. And in this case, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was the author of this particular history. Okay? But no matter who was the original author, remember Moses wasn't born yet in all the history of Genesis. He compiled it, but he compiled it as a historian, taking original, hopefully original documents and putting them together, and the Holy Spirit made sure that the words that Moses put down were exactly what he wanted. But it goes on to say, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generations. Noah walked with God. The first phrase, Noah was a righteous man, certainly does not indicate sinless perfection. For we know that there, are n there is no one in such a state on this earth save the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a reference to the grace of God, as mentioned also in verse 8, that was active in his life to declare him righteous by faith. Notice verse 8. But Noah found favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord. Through his, though his righteousness, or I should say, through his right, though his righteousness came from the grace of God, the result of that righteousness was a life lived with a sincere desire to live godly. And that's really how it works, whether you're in the Old Testament or whether you're in the New Testament times. The grace of God appears to each believer. The Holy Spirit works in that believer to, to save them and then leads that believer to a life of sincere walking with the Lord. Now some have interpreted this to mean 
that merely his father and his grandfather, his lineage, led in a direct line back to Adam. These are the generations, and Noah's a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Okay, well, while that is true, his father, you can, you can take the Genesis 5 and go to the genealogy all the way back. But let's turn back to Genesis 5. Okay. And notice something. Genesis 5 and verse 30. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. By the way, just this, this is free. I'm just going to mention this. Have you ever had somebody give you the old chestnut? Well, is uh, Adam and Eve had Cain and Abel, right? Yeah. And Cain killed Abel, right? Yeah. Where did Cain get his wife? Well, what does chapter 5 say? Did? Most of the time, they won't even, the person making that statement won't even know that they had a third son named in Scripture. His name was Seth. Very good. But they also had daughters. You say, he married his, his sister? Actually, yes, he did. So did Abraham marry his sister. Back when our genetic makeup was pure and clean, they didn't have to worry about genetic defects caused by intermarriage of close. Actually, if you think about it, whoever you marry, you marry your sister or brother. If you go back far enough, But in our day and age, because of what is generally, for, what scientifically referred to as genetic load, every generation there are genetic copying mistakes in all of our genes. In every generation, it gets worse. And as a matter of fact, we all pale into insignificance compared to our forefathers with their intelligence, with their strength, with we don't hold a candle to them. How many new diseases have you heard in the, the recent years? Because our, our body defense system doesn't have the ability that other generations have had. My mother-in-law often states that when she first heard of AIDS, she was thinking about the diet candy that you used to eat back in the 70s. But you never heard of AIDS back in that era. But as time goes on, that's why the Lord in the law required a certain amount of generational distance between uh, 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 spouses 
just to help protect the, the children from, from uh, uh, genetic disease. But at any rate, Noah, let's get back to what we're talking about, Noah had brothers and sisters who were directly in line with Adam. But let me ask you something. Who went on the ark? Of all Noah's siblings, who went on the ark? Of all his cousins, the children of his grandfather and great-grandfather Enoch, how many of those folks went on the ark? And I think, as we'll see, that plays a part later on in Noah's life. This does mean, however, that before everyone else, and this will go back to our original topic about the righteousness of Noah, before everyone else around him, the people of his generation, his contemporaries, they saw a life that was lived consistently with his profession of faith. What he said, he sincerely sought to live. And can any of us do any better than that? We're certainly not going to be perfect. Can we not sincerely make every attempt in every aspect of our lives to please the only one that counts, the Lord God of heaven? He had that testimony before his contemporaries because he walked with God. And that's what it takes. Day in, day out, moment by moment, being consciously aware of and dependent on His presence with us. Just like Noah's great-grandfather before him, Enoch, that was Enoch's testimony. He walked with God. And Noah had the same testimony. He walked with God. His plan for Enoch was different than his plan for Noah. But nevertheless, the two of them walked the same. Now, you might say, well, if Noah was the author of this passage... Isn't he going to be uh, complimentary of himself? Well, remember the Holy Spirit is the one guiding these words. But nevertheless, as far as independent testimony, after all, after all uh, uh, a mouth of two or three witnesses, shall every word be established? Let's turn to the book of Ezekiel.
Ezekiel was a prophet in, during the time when uh, Nebuchadnezzar was uh, ascending as king and uh, Ezekiel was, had been abducted to uh, Babylon and Ezekiel was a prophet to the exiles in uh, in uh, Babylon, but before Jerusalem fell in 586 B.C. But in this context, in Ezekiel chapter 14, and we'll start actually in verse 12, the Lord is explaining to Ezekiel, and Ezekiel naturally to his contemporaries, just how rotten Judah and Jerusalem were. In verse 12, Ezekiel says, And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, when a land sins against me by acting faithlessly, and I stretch out my hand against it and break its supply of bread and send famine upon it and cut off from it man and beast, Note this, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would, they would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness, declares the Lord. And again, you can, we could continue reading, but if uh, uh, you can skip down to verse 20, for the sake of brevity. Even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither son nor daughter. They would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness. So picture these three biblical characters. Noah, who's the subject of the message. Daniel, who, by the way, was a contemporary of Ezekiel's and Job. And we all know that the, this is referred to as the patience of Job. But if these three men were in the city of Jerusalem as the famine was raging, as the animals were dying, as the people were dying, as the Babylonian armies had surrounded and laid siege to the city, Nobody was going out and nobody was coming in. They would live through it, as by the way, Jeremiah did. And every, everybody else was, was, even if they were interceding for, those, for that city, which is implied in this passage, that they were great intercessors, They wouldn't deliver anybody else except themselves. And my point in bringing this passage up is God viewed Noah as a righteous man and as a tremendous intercessor. We know Daniel was an intercessor. We know that 
three times a day, he set himself apart, and despite the decree of the king, he openly and blatantly prayed for Jerusalem. And I would wager that he openly and, and blatantly prayed for Nebuchadnezzar. And that vile, ungodly man, as far as we can tell by the testimony of Scripture, you'll see in heaven. Because Daniel was faithful. And Job, going through all that trouble and, what, and, and pain and sorrow and confusion, yet in the end, what did the Lord say? You, Bildad, you three friends, take an offering and take it to Job and he will pray for you. Because you did not represent me accurately. Job, as well, was a godly man and an intercessor for others. And so was Noah. Turn with me also. To Second Peter, chapter five. Not only was he a godly man who walked consistently in the grace of God, seeking to reflect that grace and godliness to all whom he meets. Not only was he an intercessor for his generation, but he was also a preacher. Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 5. Again, in, in context, Peter is using the examples of Scripture to warn his readers of the impending judgment of God. And if there was ever an impending judgment... It was be it would be during the days of Noah and the Lord remember the Lord Jesus does the same thing for us as in the days of Noah so in the days of the Son of Man but notice what he says in verse 5 if he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah a preacher of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly and and the passage goes on so Noah during this time was preaching the gospel of the Lord uh, the gospel of salvation let's put it that way to his contemporaries praying for them working with a massive object lesson behind him I am sure that he used that ship that he was building to be a warning of the impending judgment of God. Along with being an historical fact, 
the ark was actually one of the best, is actually one of the best pictures of salvation in the whole Bible. Just as the ark was the sole means of salvation for the flood, so Christ alone is the sole means of escaping God's impending judgment on our sin. There is but one door in the ark. There is but one door to salvation. And that is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And to avoid perishing under the onslaught of God's righteous judgment, you must be in Christ. You, in order to avoid the flood, you must be in the ark. So, back to Genesis chapter 6 and verse 22. What was Noah's great triumph? We talked about his, his righteousness, his character, but what was his great triumph? Well, uh, it's rather obvious what his great triumph was. Look at chapter 6 and verse 22. Noah did this. Let's get back to 21, talking about gathering all the food. Noah did this. But notice the second phrase. He did all that God commanded him. What an epitaph. How would you like to have written in God's eternal word that so-and-so did all that God commanded him or her? Wouldn't that be fantastic? D did everything God commanded her. Ron did everything God commanded. What a term, what? I can't think of a greater blessing. Except it might be uh, welcome, now faithful servants into the joy of thy Lord. But what exactly was it that Noah did? Well, obviously he built the ark. And this was no ordinary boat. And it was certainly not the upside down bathtub with a giraffe's neck hanging out the top that you, you always see in the kids', the kids uh, books. It was one of the largest wooden ocean-going vessels ever constructed. It was over 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high, and had three decks. If you go outside and look at this building, that's approximately, in fact, I don't even think this is 450 feet long, this building. Yeah, so you double that for the rest, the rest of the... So, double the length of this building. 
That's a big ship. By the way, if anybody is unaware of it, Answers in Genesis is building a full-size ark in Kentucky. And they're about ready to break ground in a couple of years, Lord willing. Uh, we'll be able to go and get a glimpse of just how massive this thing was. It, was so it is so large that skeptics, skeptics often use its size to argue that it was impossible for him to build it. They argue that Noah was not a shipwright, so how could he build such a ship? Well, how do they know? What did Noah do for 500 years before God told him to build the ark? Now, let me ask you something. How, since I'm speaking to all adults here, how much more do you know right now about any topic you want to pick up about? How much more do you know right now than you did when you were a senior in high school? How much general knowledge about everything have you learned over the 30, 40, 50 <coughs> years since you graduated from high school? Now multiply that to 500 years. How much can you learn? How much knowledge can you accumulate in that time? And because of their constitution, because of the conditions in which they live, he was still an active and vital man at 500 years old. Probably more than I was at 50. And he had 120 years to build it. And he might have hired some of his contemporaries. I would rather imagine that he did. It would be rather hard to, to fell big trees and uh, carry them to a mill and, and cut them up. But the skeptics also argue that more modern wooden ships approaching that size soon failed to be watertight and sank. But one thing to remember, God built it, or Noah built it by God's specifications. And there are various, when you get into the specifics of how to put together ocean-going vessels, there are various ways that the ancients used to construct their ships that modern shipbuilders don't use or didn't use during the time of wooden construction. And it would be very easy to waterproof a, the ship like that rather than the more modern techniques because we complain about products getting cheaper in our day and age. Now they had the same thing in the 17 and 1800s. They wanted to get the ship out, and they wanted to get it that floating because it wasn't making money for them in dry dock or whatever. What else did Noah do? He, what does it say in verse 22? Like we, we 21, I should say. He also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up 
It shall serve as food for you and for them, the them being the animals. Okay. So Noah gathered enough food for himself and for his family and also enough, enough seed to plant after the flood. Now we don't know if Noah grew it himself or he purchased it from other farmers. All we know for sure is that he gathered it. Also, did Noah gather the animals? No. He did not have to gather the animals. They came to him. God brought them to him. And then, by the way, it's not the millions of animals that skeptics try to say, but two of every created kind and, and uh, uh, eight four of the, the clean. But nevertheless, uh, there are ongoing efforts to determine how many kinds of animals the Lord created and how many kinds of animals went on to that ark. And when I say a kind, it, that's that God's taxonomy is a little bit different than, than humans' taxonomy. It, God doesn't divide it up between you know, uh, family and, and genera and, and all the rest of the, the uh, um, classification system, which, by the way, a creationist developed not an evolutionist. But nevertheless, there would, the best estimates right now is there would have been less than 16,000 animals on the ark. Which also included the dinosaurs. Extinct animals. And they all went willingly into the ark. And the picture you get when you read scripture is that Noah was already inside and they walked up by themselves onto the ark. Now how can wild animals do that? How would they do that? Well, the very same way that the fish all ran to the net when the Lord Jesus said, Peter, throw the net on the right side of the ship. And the fish all swam there. Because he's the Lord of the animals as well as the Lord of creation. And unlike his particularly sinful top of creation, i.e. humans, the animals aren't sinners. They can't be sinners because they're not moral creatures. But they obey what their creator says. And then finally, we know that Noah wrote out the flood in the ark. Okay? But what about Noah's great failure? Because that we have to deal with as well. As we said before, Noah was certainly not perfect. And unfortunately, the last glimpse we have of, of Noah 
is something less than flattering. In verse 20 of chapter 9, Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. But before we talk about the text, I want you to use your imagination and try to visualize the condition into which Noah and his family walked as they got off the ark. Prior to the flood, there was one continent that existed. It was cataclysmically split in seven different continents. Can you imagine the earthquake? We're thinking about when California gets the big one. Well, the big one doesn't even compare to the historical big one. There was nothing left of the geography that Noah knew. There was absolutely nothing familiar. Before, there was less vegetation everywhere. Now there was barrenness. No trees or bushes, just overturned stumps and rock outcroppings here and there. The only thing green was a few plants that had recently started to grow. Previously there had been gentle hills. Now there were jagged and towering mountains, ominous, dangerous, and foreboding. Earthquakes and aftershocks would have been numerous. A stiff breeze would be blowing in a consistently overcast sky. According to some legends of the flood, and I'll talk about that a little bit, it took over 20 years before there was blue sky seen. And every day it got colder as the earth fell into what we now call the Ice Age which is a direct result of the flood. And maybe, maybe most oppressive at all, is there's not an animal, there's not a person anywhere in sight other than your immediate family. Can you imagine Noah thinking about his friends, his family, his cousins, the people that he witnessed to, the people that he preached to, all dead. Every last one of them. We find from, out from uh, Genesis chapter 4 that before the flood there was animal husbandry, tent making, metallurgy, musical instruments. So there was some industry and trade. But immediately after the flood, the only way to get food for your family was grow it yourself. There was no one to trade with. So Noah had to take the seeds and the plants that he, board, he brought on board and start farming. And once his grapes started to produce fruit, he started to make wine. 
And may I suggest something to you? This is what I believe. It's certainly not mentioned in Scripture. But I believe Noah was depressed. I believe he was sincerely depressed, similar to the way that Elijah was after his great victory that seemed to turn nobody's heart. How great a triumph did he do on Mount Carmel and wicked old Jezebel says, I'm going to get you. He was depressed and ran. I believe Noah was depressed. All that preaching, all that work, and nobody came, and everybody died. So his great failure, I believe, is to maintain a close and strong walk with the Lord in order to gain his comfort, his solace, his help in time of trouble. Rather, he sought help and comfort elsewhere. But while we're here, and I just want to touch on this briefly, in Genesis 9.22, we see the other part of this rather ugly, sordid tale. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. And Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both of their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward so that they did not see the na their father's nakedness. Okay? The problem here is not that Ham happened to see his father naked. Nor, as some have suggested, was there any sexual activity implied. His problem was he did not respect his, father, his, his father's privacy or even love his father enough to, to protect his privacy. He didn't respect his pri privacy and he did not protect his privacy, both of which his brothers did. And as a result, Noah, when he woke from his wine, pronounced a curse. He said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Now there's been much false doctrine and even racist teachings using this verse. It's sometimes called the curse of Ham. But I want you to look at something very closely. Who was it that was cursed? It was Canaan, the son of Ham. It's sort of similar to what most mothers tell their daughters. I hope you have five kids just like you. Similar to that. Some have taught that this was the curse of dark-skinned 
Africans, dooming them to poverty and slavery. Some have even taught that this brought about dark-skinned people. No. While it is true that Ham is the father of most African people, that's as far as it goes. First of all, and this is extra biblical, but how much authority are you going to give to a curse of a man with a hangover? No matter how righteous he was, he had a hangover. He was not feeling very spiffy. But more importantly, again, whom did Noah curse? It was Canaan, Ham's son. And if you turn to Genesis chapter 10, verses 15 through 19, it states where the descendants of Canaan populated. In the area that we call Palestine, between the Mediterranean coast and the Dead Sea. It never extended into Africa. The people, even if you, you apply this verse to, to make it really uh, have some sort of author spiritual authority, it applies to nobody living today. It applied to the Canaanites whom God used to judge Israel to judge and wipe them out as a political entity. So don't, do not take this as a curse on black people. God loves variety. They're just, people are people are people are people. And whether they have a lot of melanin in their skin or a little bit of melanin in their skin, it really doesn't matter. Okay? Lessons for our lives, and we'll do this quickly. The only way to live a successful life is to know the Lord, to seek His will and to follow it no matter what the rest of the world is doing. Now, even though our last picture of Noah is not that complimentary, the Lord lets us know throughout the rest of Scripture what He thinks of Noah and how he lived his life. He was a godly man. One that we would be Please, to call granddad. But no matter what you may accumulate to yourself in this life or how much authority you may hold or how famous a person you may be, in reality, only God's opinion counts throughout all eternity. Because all that stuff, everything that you have, everything that you can hold, you're going to lose. Everything that you are as far as personality, you're going to lose. Your health, you're going to lose. Your good looks, you're going to lose. And some of us already have. And it might be old, and it might be cliche, and it might be... Tiresome to hear, but it is still true. To, 
Tis only one life, twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Number two, never doubt the plain statements of the Word of God. Our world scoffs at the idea of Noah and the global flood. And I could actually spend the next several hours, if not days, talking about all the physical evidence that supports the biblical uh, story. But for sake of brevity, I will just mention this. There are over 300 legends, known flood legends around the world. Virtually every culture has an ancient story about the flood. Now they're all altered in some way to suit the local culture. But their mere existence shows that the stories are grounded in the real event. And the real event is recorded in Scripture. It's the only one that is accurate. It's the only one that makes sense. Because it is the only one that was providentially preserved by God. Number three, never, ever get your history or your theology from Hollywood. They're in the business of entertainment, telling stories. That's what they do. Now, where there, there are some true believers in the entertainment industry, just like in every other walk of life, but for the most part, the writers, producers, and actors in Hollywood are unbelievers, antagonistic to the word and the rebellion against God. And it's in the condition that we're all in before we're saved, which is why all people must be born again. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for this time. Help us to live the truth of your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.